a 42-year-old man was driving home early in the morning after being the best man in his brother's wedding the night before when he struck and killed a 39-year-old cyclist. And then he ran. Nine days later, the police found him, and at his sentencing, the father of the deceased man concluded with this in his impact statement. I hope that when your time comes, that you rot in hell. A man pleaded guilty to charges of sexual assault and sexual interference for activity that was hidden from his wife for years. His wife's impact statement in in court concluded like this. My hate for you knows no bounds. I know you want forgiveness, but don't hold your breath. A couple years ago, the Larry Nasser case made headlines. The doctor who sexually abused over 150 young female gymnasts on the U.S. national team. Rachel Denholander had been a young gymnast on that U.S. national team years prior and was the first to come forward to report him. And she was also the last to read her impact statement in court. And what she read to Larry Nasser in court went viral. She said to him, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. In 2006, a gunman took hostages in a one-room schoolhouse in the Amish community of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. When it was all over, the gunman had shot 10 victims, five of whom died and were between the ages of 7 and 13, and then he killed himself. Within hours of this tragedy, members of the Amish community visited the killer's parents expressing sympathy for their loss and support for the hard times ahead. At the gunman's funeral, his widow, along with her three children, were amazed to see that half of those attending were Amish, there to show support for the murderer's family. The forgiveness and love shown by the Amish community was on display to the whole country and world. The way in which they handled their suffering was a powerful testimony to the grace of God to the watching world. But how were they able to do that? Some scholars wrote a book about the tragedy entitled Amish Grace and concluded that their ability to forgive was based on two things. First, It was grounded in deep reflection and meditation on Christ forgiving his tormentors and killers. At the heart of our faith is a man who died for his enemies. We sing about it, speak about it, we celebrate it constantly. Therefore, the practice of forgiving even the murderers of children will not seem impossible. Second, At its heart, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. It means giving up your right to pay back. Now, we share an Anabaptist tradition with the Amish, by the way. We just differ on the doctrine of electronics. Anyways, 
We share this tradition with the Anabaptists, but the truth of the matter is that in our society today, it's not self-renunciation that we are taught, but self-assertion, my freedom, my interests, my needs above all others. But a self-asserting culture produces revenge as a response, whereas the self-renunciation counterculture of the Amish produced a response of mercy. The scholars concluded, most of us therefore have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. We are looking at the fifth beatitude with our time today. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The good life according to Jesus says, blessed, happy, flourishing are those who are merciful over and against a culture that mocks grace, seeks revenge, and harbors resentments. So so here's what we're going to do with our time together. First, we're going to look at mercy can never be earned. Second, mercy means compassion plus action. We can make up a word, complexion. And then third, mercy is forgiving. So first, mercy can never be earned. Now, there's a way of getting this verse wrong. There's a bad interpretation of this verse. It's been said that no other beatitude has been as misunderstood as this one. It's often read this way. See if you've read it this way yourself. If I'm merciful towards others, God will be merciful towards me. Now, just one chapter later in Matthew 6, we see the Lord's Prayer, and it's, it's often read this way. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you don't, you won't be forgiven. Now, there are at least two things wrong with, with that interpretation of the text. Here's the first. If you and I were to be judged strictly on those terms, it's a certainty that not one of us would be forgiven and ever see heaven. Quite literally, being forgiven by God by the rubric of the way we forgive others would leave everyone on the planet unforgiven and eternally damned. You and I don't want this, God forgiving us to the measure that we forgive others. That's problematic for us. Here's the second. If we are to interpret it that way, then we would at the same time never again be able to say that we are saved by grace. All of the glorious passages, like while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, would be void of meaning. It conflicts with other things we read in the Bible. So we need to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. We need to use the Bible to interpret this text. It cannot be saying that. So how are we to understand this text then? First, We see that God is saying that I'm only truly forgiven when I am truly repentant. But to be truly repentant means that I realize I deserve nothing but punishment. And that if I'm forgiven, it can only be attributed completely to the love and mercy and grace of God and nothing else. Second, if I'm truly repentant and realize my position before God and realize that I'm only forgiven because of the sheer mercy of God, it inevitably makes me merciful towards others. 
Now, I've said before in, in this series that, that all Christians are to embody all of the Beatitudes. We're not to pick and choose and be like, well, I'm naturally a meek person, so I'll be that one. But we are to embody all of them. Not only that, they all build upon each other. We've seen that if I'm poor in spirit, I realize the depths of my depravity and that I have no righteousness of my own. And so I mourn because of the sin that's within me and I become meek, which means now that I've caught a true and accurate glimpse of myself, nobody else can hurt me or say anything too bad about me. And I hunger and thirst for the righteousness that I've seen in Jesus and that gives me new life and a new nature. And so if I've experienced all of that, which is the first four Beatitudes, my attitude, my attitude toward everyone else is completely changed. I see them with new vision. I see them with Christian eyes, you could say, as where I would be but for the grace of God. And so I'm able to look upon other sinners mercifully. D.A. Carson put it this way, if we are not merciful, we will not be shown mercy. But how could the unmerciful man receive mercy? The one who is not merciful is inevitably so unaware of his own state that he thinks he needs no mercy. He cannot picture himself as miserable and wretched. So how shall God be merciful toward him? By contrast, the person whose experience reflects these beatitudes is conscious of his spiritual bankruptcy. He grieves over it, hungers and thirsts for righteousness and is merciful toward the wretched because they recognize themselves to be wretched. See, in being merciful, he is also shown mercy. Do you see it? Those who have received the mercy of God will inevitably show mercy towards others. We're going to build upon that more later. But first, I just want us to get the term right. Now, grace and mercy are Popular words in the church, we use them a lot and they're closely related, but they're subtly different in definition. So, so let's work that out. Stuart Briscoe said, God, uh, grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. Kent Hughes put it this way, grace is shown to the undeserving. Mercy is compassion to the miserable. Now, mercy, however, is not simply feeling compassionate. Mercy exists when something is done to alleviate distress. Mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. It's pity or it's compassion plus action. So let's look at that together. In other words, mercy requires action. Mercy is active. Mercy does something to relieve the situation. I heard the story about a 19th century preacher who happened across a friend whose horse had just died, had been accidentally killed. And while a crowd of onlookers expressed empty words of sympathy, the preacher stepped forward and said to the loudest sympathizer, I am sorry, five pounds, or I'm sorry, $10. How much are you sorry? And then he passed the hat. True mercy demands action. The great New Testament illustration of showing mercy is the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And so to describe what it meant to love neighbor, Jesus told this parable, told about a man who was traveling the Jericho road, a very steep road that uh, linked Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a dangerous road, um, many places for robbers to hide where they could prey on travelers. And that's exactly what happened in the telling of Jesus' story, where there was a man who fell among robbers and was left for dead. And then, as Jesus continues to tell the story, a couple religious leaders at different times come across him, a priest and a Levite, and seeing him, walked by the man without helping him. Now, they may well have felt compassion for the man, but they put their schedules and religious affairs above their purpose. But then a Samaritan came across the man, and it was the Samaritan who had compassion, and his compassion was extensive. He met a variety of, variety of needs for the man. Friendship, advocacy, emergency medical treatment, transportation, significant financial support, and a follow-up visit. Extensive care that changed the man's circumstances. And then Jesus goes on and he asks, who was the neighbor to the man? And the response of the person in the crowd is, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, what could possibly compel us to offer such extensive mercy? Now, Jesus could have told the parable to his Jewish audience this way. There was a Samaritan man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead, and a Jewish man came and helped him, but he didn't tell the story that way. To the Jewish audience, he tells the story of the Jewish man left for dead on the road. It's meant to get the listener to imagine himself as the needy one. When we read the story, we are meant to place ourselves as the dying man on the road. You and I are meant to see that we are in a helpless state and in need of rescue. And that's what Jesus has done for us. See, our only hope is to be rescued and ministered to by Jesus, though he owes us nothing. Our greatest need is for the free gift of grace from Jesus, though he has every justification not to. Jesus asked, who was the neighbor? And the answer is the one who showed mercy. And Jesus shows such unmerited favor to sinners like you and me. Jesus is the great Samaritan. Jesus is the great neighbor. And it's in light of that mercy extended to you and me that we minister to those in need around us. But can I show you something even more stunning about Jesus? Jesus is not only the great Samaritan, Jesus also became the victim for us. Jesus became poor. He was born in a manger in a barn. He grew up poor. He was homeless. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal with his disciples in a borrowed room. And after he was crucified, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. He didn't, he didn't only become poor. He became oppressed. He was stripped naked. He was thirsty. He was beaten. And he wasn't just left for dead, but he was killed at the hands of men who captured him at night, produced an unfair verdict without a fair trial. And if we are able to comprehend the beauty of that, that Jesus did that for us, then it will produce a sincere and joyful response in us. We recognize how lost we were and Jesus came and brought us hope. We recognize the beauty of the gospel, the great depths that Jesus went for us. How could we not then see mercy to the miserable, the needy, the unlovable 
as our natural response to the gospel. Mercy means compassion plus action. Finally, mercy is forgiving. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus tells another parable, a parable about an unforgiving servant. And it's about this man who owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the highest known denomination of currency at the time, and 10,000 was the highest number for which the Greek language had a word. 10,000 talents today could mean anywhere from several million to billions of dollars. Now, to the shock of Jesus' listeners, as he tells this parable, the king doesn't sell him and his family into slavery, which is a common way to recoup some of the money owed, but he pities the man and doesn't require payment of any kind. He shows him spectacular, surprising, breathtaking mercy. Debt forgiven. But the parable goes on. This parable is known as the parable of the unforgiving servant because this servant walks away and right after sees a man who owes him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii was known as a day's wages. So a hundred denarii was a hundred days wages or a third of an annual income. The difference was likely something like $20,000 compared with $3 billion. Now $20,000 isn't significant, but it's it's nothing compared to the debt he was just forgiven. He seized the man, choked him, and demanded that he pay back what he owed then and there. Now, through this parable, we're meant to see that our sin is the immeasurable debt, the insurmountable debt. We read that parable and think, man, that guy is nuts. What is he doing? He's been forgiven an infinite amount. And yet, if you've believed the gospel and accepted Jesus, but don't forgive, that's you. You're nuts. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. He has canceled your debt at the price of the death of his son. And those who know they've been forgiven show that by forgiving others. So you could say that whether you have really experienced mercy is demonstrated by how much you show mercy. So how much do you show mercy? And if you refuse to be merciful, there's really only one reason you've never understood God's mercy towards you. This parable serves as a warning to religious people who participate in some religious stuff but hold a death grip on their grudges. Is that you? Jesus is warning those who won't forgive, who nourish hatred and live in settled animosity. It calls into question your understanding and experience of the gospel. It places you not as the merciful neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan, but as the religious who neglect their purpose for their personal preferences. It places you as the unforgiving servant. 
Corrie ten Boom, in her book, The Hiding Place, wrote, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where I was sent. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there, but since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, she wrote, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for, for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were, a were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And as I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seems to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. Well, into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. As I said at the beginning, most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. What could possibly reverse that? To understand this, that Jesus saw us in our miserable state and that moved him to action. He came and dealt with our condition, so we do the same. Trust Jesus on this. The merciful life is the good life. 
to hold grudges and seek revenge is a prison, but as a recipient of unfathomable mercy, to extend mercy is freedom. Blessed, happy, flourishing are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for your mercy for me, your mercy for anyone who seeks it. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you too for the story of Corey Ten Boom that vividly paints the picture of this is not easy, this is difficult, but Lord, she, it was an issue of the will and she sought you in prayer that you would help her be merciful. Lord, I pray that for us in our broken relationships. Lord, that we, each of us, would be known as people of mercy and that our mercy would be a display of your infinite mercy to us. Thank you, Jesus. Pray it in your name, Lord. Amen.